As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. According to records obtained by the Fox 6 investigators, public records, public records from the 10 largest school open records requests revealed the email. 500 pages of protest records request includes a letter from Milwaukee public County District. Public records show feedback flooding Sheriff Eric Severson's phone. And we only know that because of an open records the request. The law says those records belong to you, so why can't you see them? Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hey, Brian. Hi, Amanda. We are recording this episode on Thursday, October 7th. Today on Open Record, we are doing a crash course about open records, what they are, why you want them, how to get them. And we're here with probably one of the preeminent experts in the state of Wisconsin on this subject, Open Records attorney Tom Kamenick, founder of the law firm the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Hi, Tom. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. Let's start right with the basics, Tom. What is a record? Wisconsin has a very expansive definition of record. So virtually anything in government possession that contains information on it is a record. And here we're talking about state and local government entities. So not the federal government, not Congress, not the president, but all the way from the governor's office down through the legislature and all your local school boards and city councils. And I mean, the the next logical question, besides reporters and uh, people like yourself, why do we want to see those? What's so important about them? What is government spending your money on? What is government doing for you or with you or sometimes against you? All that information is kind of what gets shown by these government records, who they're talking to, what they are doing, where they are spending the money. Tom, I, I have been in this business for a long time, and we as journalists rely a lot on public records and and open records requests. And I know that attorneys often uh, have to make a lot of requests of government for the things that are in their possession. But for the average person, maybe people don't often think about this being something they might want to do or need to do until the time comes up. And they're like, how do I get that? How do I, you know, file a request? But, But before we even get there, what kinds of things can open records show you? For the average person, what's in them? What can they tell us about our government? So one of the most common sets of record requests that that I get questions about is for internal investigations. So take, for example, you hear that your local school district where your child is attending, uh, all of a sudden a a teacher disappears, is let go, uh, resigns without any explanation. Well, you might want to find out why, and they might not want to tell you a whole lot about it. But thankfully, with the records law, you can get that information. You can find out what kind of complaints were filed. Uh, This is often uh, commonly used, too, for police officers. This is a big topic lately of uh, police officer misconduct. uh, And 
the, the details of complaints and investigations into misconduct are not secret, especially once they've been completed, the public can look into those. It's also common to look into communications and see who are your government officials and your government employees talking to. So perhaps you have a big developer that's looking to create a large new development in your city. So in Western Wisconsin and St. Croix County right now, they're, lo they're looking at a possible new Amazon facility, a distribution facility there. And there's a lot of communication going on between local officials and the developers. So you can see what they're talking about too. What strikes me about the law is that it, it makes it clear, and I think sometimes this isn't always clear to the public, the public owns these records, right? These are your records. It's just that the government is charged with maintaining them, with keeping them. That's why we call them records custodians, right? But sometimes, um, as you just alluded to, the attitude <laughs> from the government agency maybe doesn't reflect that. I know we've encountered requesters who have seemed to really want to hold on to those records, and that can be daunting for, for the average person trying to get them. What's been your experience with that? Yeah, our state for I think a long time has been having a kind of a declining attitude towards records. And you, you do get these custodians who don't want to admit or maybe don't understand that these are the public's records. It is called the public records law, sometimes the open records law. And government records are your records. We have representative governments. We have people who uh, in government don't like to admit that. And it takes people who are dedicated to watchdogging, to transparency, uh, people who are willing to make the requests and ask the difficult questions to keep this stuff in the light. Tom, I, I think about th that concept. The notion is certainly a noble one that there are records, that they belong to us. But I can't walk into the Milwaukee Police Department and say, open up some file drawers. I'd like to look through them. I can't walk into the Department of Public Works and say, here, let me go through that file folder. Just hand it over to me. We have to go through this process and then they have to determine what is and isn't releasable to the public. And, and, and I, I, want, I get to that point for this reason. Even though they are our records, there are all sorts of exceptions to what is in fact public. And many times those things are sort of mixed in with what is. Can you talk a little bit about the reasons that governments can and often do deny releasing records to the public? Yeah. And if you don't mind, if I, if I move back into a, a little higher view for a minute, you know, I think historically, if you looked 100, 150 years ago, you actually could do just that. You could, government didn't have massive quantities of data and information about private citizens in its possession by and large, uh, you know, back in our history. And so that government records, especially at your local town hall, city hall, were very simple stuff about budgets and, uh, you know, basic communications and letters and, and, and just a lot of data that you could go and look at. And, the way the law is written actually does allow for inspection of a lot of records, but you're, you're right as a practical matter, especially these days, that a lot of records do have information in them that is not meant to be public. So government is keeping a lot of information about us, and there's a lot of it that I think people would, would reasonably expect would not be 
disclosable. So you have a lot of statutory exceptions for some of the obvious things like medical records uh, under HIPAA or federal or education records under FERPA and, and the state law equivalents. You know, there's laws saying you cannot get the identities of confidential informants or people's bank account information. So, so the legislature has gone through and, and kind of looked at those more obvious types of records that should not be publicly released and, and created exemptions for them. And courts have gone through and created some exemptions too. So there are court created rules that say, for example, that the prosecution files of your district attorneys, those cannot be disclosed. Anything that's attorney client privilege, because every government entity out there has lawyers working for it and communications between them, you won't be able to get. Then there's also finally what's called the balancing test. And so not all states have this kind of uh, judge determined balancing test, but in Wisconsin, custodians and judges will look at records and decide whether the, so to back up for a sec, they start from a presumption that records are open. It says right in the law that there's a presumption that every record is accessible. But even if there's not a specific exception that applies to it, custodians and courts still will ask, is there some kind of public interest in non-disclosures? There's some reason the public would expect records like this to be kept secret that outweighs the broad and powerful presumption in favor of disclosure. So very commonly here, you'll come up with things that might put somebody's safety at risk or somebody's personal privacy at risk, the details of their private lives that even if aren't you know, specifically covered by statute are the kind of thing that don't really show the official acts of government in any way that would be important to use the open records law to discover. But Tom, I imagine that that presumption has got to be a, a really key piece of this. And I think of the analogy, I was just watching baseball playoffs last night. And when there's a controversial call made on the field and they have to go to review, you often hear that what the call on the field was is this sort of that's the expectation. And it takes something to overturn that what the initial presumption is has a lot of weight. It takes something to overturn it. How important is it for that presumption to be that the records are open when you're determining what's releasable and what's not? It's absolutely key. And this is where you get a lot of disagreement between custodians and the public or even the courts. I hear a lot from custodians, well, you need to show me the law that says I have to release this. Well, no, I don't actually. I don't need to have a specific case on point or, or and this. I don't have to show you a statute that says exactly this kind of record has to be turned over. The law says turn over every public record unless the law provides otherwise. But when you have a situation where you're you're doing balancing tests, of course, that leads to uh, wide areas of interpretation and uh, we've gotten some interesting responses over the years related to a balancing test. I mean, I've I've requested records uh, that were investigations. Several cases in Wisconsin made it clear that those are to be released to the public. And I've gotten a response. Well, we did the balancing test. And if we release this, it might have a chilling effect on our hiring. So you don't get the records. And then you have to fight. And then you have to go back and forth and, and maneuver. So if you are denied records in those cases, I mean, realistically, what can you do? So for a balancing test case, it's going to be difficult because 
it's a judgment call. And the custodians have made a judgment call and, and decided that they're right already. I think there's very little you might be able to do to convince them otherwise there. One thing you can do would be to, to talk with the custodian. You know, a lot of custodians they may not want to turn over a lot, but also they don't want to spend all their time constantly working with you on this. And I think if you give them an avenue to, to get you as much of, of what you want as they can, and a lot of times they will work with you. Uh, you know, it's in their interest to, to get this over with and, and get you out of their hair for the meantime, at least. Uh, so I found that, that, that if you're persistent, but you're still polite about things when you're talking with them, and you, you might be able to find out, okay, you can't give me this, but here's what I'm looking for. Do you have any records that would, you know, enlighten me as to this, you know, provide some information about this that you can turn over? And so I've had uh, my, for myself and for a lot of my clients, they've been successful finding alternative routes to get information that they're looking for from different sources. Tom, you're, you're an attorney, obviously, and, and I think it's amazing that there is something like the Wisconsin Transparency Project. And I want to talk more about why you started this in a little bit, but I, but I want to ask this because the common impression in hearing a discussion like this might be for someone who's never filed an open records request that, oh, I must need a lawyer for that. I must need to hire someone to get records from my government. That's not true, obviously. We know that. How do you file an open records request? It's really simple in Wisconsin. There's no magic language you have to use. You don't have to cite to statute numbers or have a detailed understanding of how the law works. My, my one key piece of advice for people is to put it in writing. That can be an email or a letter. Uh, technically, you can make requests verbally, but there's problems with that because if it goes badly, first of all, you have no legal recourse. They, uh, you can't file a lawsuit just based on a verbal request. And putting things down in writing makes sure that everybody understands things and there's a, a record, a paper trail of what was said and what wasn't said uh, so you can be clearer about things. Uh, and the, the writing has a little more formality to it than a verbal request too. But simply just writing an email, a quick email to you know, your, your, your city council member or your local mayor, or the school superintendent saying, you know, I would like copies of your most recent budget of emails between you and this developer that contain any one of the following five keywords, uh, copies of the accident and investigation reports from an incident that happened on such and such day. You want to be, you want to give them detail about what you're looking for. You want to keep it fairly narrow if you can. If you know the, the exact name of the record or, or the type of record you're, you're looking for, that's the best. And if you don't know what kind of record you're looking for, you might want to call and talk to somebody first and find out what they have. Because when you make records saying, I want form 85B, all copies of that from the last five years, that's much simpler and much easier to handle than, you know, I want all your records related to COVID. Yeah, that one's probably going to get denied as overly broad, right? Yeah, it, it, they can deny a request that's that's extremely broad and difficult to, to, to parse out exactly what it is you're looking for. So if I file my request, I get denied, I've called the records custodian, they're not budging, I still think that it's a record that I should be able to get. That's typically where you come in, right? 
Yeah. So my practice by and large is fielding phone calls and emails from people who have been denied or have questions about what to request, or maybe they're being charged fees, or maybe they're not being denied at all, but they can't get an answer. And it's been months since they've made their request. And I do all kinds of consultation on those issues for free, pro bono. I don't charge for people who are calling with questions. I will take a look at their responses and give them advice on what their options are. And at that point, sometimes I will suggest that people uh, retain me to write a letter on their behalf. So the most of what I do after the consultation is letter writing. And so in the past you know, two years that the Transparency Project has been open, we've written over 100 letters to custodians and other government entities demanding records or demanding that they cease illegal practices. And if that doesn't work, or sometimes I will rec recommend this directly, we will go right to litigation. So uh, I keep my costs low and I do a lot of low and no cost representation for people. So when we file lawsuits, typically I take a a small amount as a retainer up front that covers you know, some of my time and my out-of-pocket expenses, but then I do the rest of the work on a contingency because both the open records law and open meetings law have provisions saying if you win, the other side pays your attorney's fees. So I, I put that burden, that risk of loss mostly on myself. Before there was a Wisconsin Transparency Project. Uh, you know, Wisconsin has, in some ways, a very, uh, a very favorable open records law in that presumption of openness. Um, th there's a lot of access to things here that maybe some other states don't have. But what Wisconsin uh, has in its law that can be very problematic for a requester, for someone who wants to get these records, is there's no prescribed time frame that a government agency has to respond within. I know there are other states where it might be 10 days or whatever it might be, and that could be problematic because some requests are small, some are very big. Wisconsin's just says, as soon as practicable and without delay, and boy, we could have a long debate over what that means. But I bring this up to say I've been doing this for years as a journalist, and I know there are some people who've done it as individuals, those who do it as attorneys. Uh, but what you often run into with, with these things is you might get delayed or you might get denied. And then what? If you're not an attorney, and I'm not, and if you don't have maybe a, a boss who has it in the budget to go hire one prior to someone like the Wisconsin Transparency Project, you're kind of out of luck unless you can just sort of, you know, twist somebody's arm enough. I, I guess I wonder, um, you know, without something like your project, what do you do in, you know, when you've got when you're facing a denial, when you're facing something that you think is improper or an unnecessary delay or or maybe a charge that you think is exorbitant, you know, what do you do short of hiring a lawyer? So let's start with fees. Uh, if you get a large bill, the first question I would ask them is, is make sure they break it down into what costs what. If they just say, give us $500 for these and don't explain it, that's that's not sufficient. They need to show you what they're charging you for, because the law is very specific about what they can charge. They can charge you for the actual cost of reproduction, so photo photocopying. If you want them mailed to you, you, they can charge you the actual cost of postage. Perhaps the largest uh, source of dispute is what's called location fees. And uh, the law says that they can charge the actual necessary and direct cost of locating a record. And the, the, the current status of this is generally that they get to charge the, the hourly rate for the lowest paid person who's capable of doing the search to locate the records. 
One big way to get around big location fees is to ask for electronic records. If they are doing email searches of specific keywords, rather than reviewing every email and looking for the ones that match a, a general topic you're looking for, if you just say, I want every email that has the one of these five words in it, practically speaking, that takes a couple minutes at most for them to search. So you can often get location fees down by looking for electronic records instead of paper ones. Even with electronic records, though, and, and Brian, you've experienced this too, we've gotten some pretty big bills. I mean, in, in some cases, upwards of even 80 or $90 an hour, um, adding up to hundreds of dollars for the location of electronic records. In your opinion, how often is this provision of the law abused? I think it's abused a lot. Uh, it's This really is my second biggest complaint about Wisconsin's open records law, that the, the permission of these, of these vacuous, ambiguous location fees. I, you know, I honestly think we've gotten far away from the actual intent of the law. I think it was originally intended to mean if the government has to hire somebody to bring somebody in to deal with this record request that you've made and it's actual out-of-pocket outlay for the government, then they can charge you for it. I think that's what was originally intended because it makes no sense to say, well, we have this salaried clerk. If you make a record request, it's not going to change our budget. It's not going to do have any effect on, on how much money we're spending because this person is getting paid their salary regardless. I don't think that was the intent of, uh, of the legislature when they created the location fees. But unfortunately, that's where we've wound up. And it's something we're possibly looking at challenging, although it would be a major, major project since it is the, the kind of accepted status quo at the moment. One response we get a lot when we're going back and forth about location fees is, well, you know, we, we've got to recoup the cost of this because it means we have to drop the rest of our work to work on your public records request. And that's just not fair to the rest of the taxpayers. What's your response when you hear that? This is not an individual benefit. These are records for the public. Literally any person could make the exact same request and get the exact same records that you are getting. So they're not working for you when they're fulfilling your record request. They're working for the general public, for all of us. I had a recent experience, and I'm not on this podcast going to out who it was, but there may come a time where this becomes the subject of a story. But there was a uh, a local government agency uh, where I have submitted a number of requests this year, maybe four or five. Um, and th they weren't gigantic requests, but they took some time to produce the records. And I, and I got a call from a spokesperson for this agency who, during the course of our conversation, said – you know, when we keep getting the same requests for similar records, it gets tiresome. And I, I took that conversation to be a uh, an active attempt to discourage me from filing additional records requests. From your point of view as someone who does this for a living, you know, makes, tries to make government transparency uh, the foundation of, of what you fight for, what do you think when you hear a government agency spokesperson saying open records requests are tiresome? that they don't get it, they don't get what they're doing, that they don't understand that they're working for us, that these records are our records. I, I see this attitude and when you said exactly that, that well, we keep getting the same requests, 
first of all, obviously there's a really big public interest in whatever topic this is. And therefore it's even more important to get the information about this topic out there. Second of all, if you keep getting the same requests, why don't you just put this information up on your website? <laughs> put it somewhere where it's easy to access. Uh, we do see this happening in more states and some larger cities where they're moving to data portals where uh, the public can just go on to a website and, and peruse through huge amounts of information and data and find what they're looking for. And that's seemed to be a pretty good uh, a pretty good solution in a lot of places to removing the difficulties that can be caused by keeping uh, by repeatedly having to go looking for the same kind of information. When going back and forth on these requests, it is helpful to have some kind of knowledge of case law when it comes to open records in Wisconsin. Do you have any cases in particular that are favorites of yours or that you find uh, keep coming up often? I really like a line of cases, and, and there's several of these, but the most recent one was from 2014. It was called McIver versus Erpenbach. So this is the John K. McIver Institute, which is a, a think tank and reporter with a, a right-leaning bent to their stories and their investigations. And they were looking into Act 10, and they made a pretty simple re request to a state senator named John Erpenbach saying, hey, we, we want to see what people are talking to you or saying to you about Act 10. So please send us all your emails uh, that have act uh, that reference Act 10. And the senator did so, but the senator redacted all the email addresses and all the names of the people who were emailing him. And so we took that to court, and we got the Court of Appeals ruled that yes, that that, uh, that legislators cannot hide from you. That government officials cannot hide who is trying to influence them. Even if who is trying to influence them is just John Q. Public down the street, uh, the fact that they are attempting to influence their elected representatives is public information. And the result of that case is great by itself, but it's, it's one of a long line of cases that says, going back to this balancing test, Mr. and Mrs. Custodian, if you want to say to us that there's really, really bad things are going to happen, if we release these records, because that's what Erpenbach was saying, was that Act 10 is toxic. This is a nuclear environment. If we put these people's names out there, they're going to be subject to harassment and reprisals and threats, and it's going to be a disaster. And the court said, okay, that's plausible. We could see that that would happen. That might happen. But you did not put in any evidence of that. You couldn't show that this was actually happening to people who just contacted their representatives. So you cannot make these arguments that something disastrous is going to happen if you release these records without evidence. You can't guess. You can't just have opinions about this. You need to show us courts hard facts to prove this. So this is something I've come back to constantly in my cases because custodians are constantly telling me the sky is going to fall if we release these records so we can't do it. And my response is always, if that's true, show me. And at that point, we would agree with you. If you can show us that this is, is going to be disastrous, then those records should not be rele released. You know, I go back to the very top of this podcast, and the sound bites we heard at the beginning were from stories that both Amanda and I have done here on Fox 6 News. Just some a smattering of examples of stories that resulted from 
Open records requests from finding out that the city of Milwaukee plans to spend $330 million on a streetcar expansion, which they've yet to discuss publicly, to finding out just how students are performing in school districts all over our area uh, during the pandemic, things that you wouldn't have known just by attending school board meetings necessarily, even if you had the time to do that. So there are all sorts of examples that we could come up with as to where public records shed light on important stories. Um, I think many times it's easy to listen to maybe a podcast like this or to to just hear someone talk sort of in a general sense about open records and think that's inside baseball. But there's a real impact on what we know as you know citizens of the state of Wisconsin um, because of what's in many of these records. Obviously, Tom, you've decided that that's something you're passionate about fighting for. Are there things through your work that you feel that you've helped to expose by getting records that if people didn't otherwise know about them, uh, you know, that there would have been a real loss to the state? Yeah, one of the biggest cases that we're working on right now at the Court of Appeals involves a a state representative in the assembly named Stausch Krasinski, I should say a former state uh, assemblyman. And uh, a couple of years ago, the assembly released a very short press release saying uh, Representative Grzynski was investigated for uh, sexual harassment and found to have violated the assembly's code of conduct, and he's being punished. The end. <laughs> you know, no details at all about what he actually did. And uh, unsurprisingly, there was a flurry of record requests for information, particularly the the investigation, the complaint that was filed, any reports that were released on it. And the assembly said, no, we're not going to give you that. We're just going to give you this five-sentence summary of of it that doesn't tell you anything at all about what actually happened. And we filed a lawsuit on this, and the court ruled that, that, no, they cannot just provide summaries, that these investigations are important for for two main reasons. And, And first of all is that the public deserves to know when officials or, or even government employees, these, these cases go back quite a ways on this, commit misconduct and violate laws and violate policies and do bad things when they're uh, supposed to be representing us or supposed to be working for us. But secondly, too, there's an important public interest in the investigation itself. You know, this, this goes back to the whole Me Too movement, right? That, that misconduct and powerful people when they do wrong things, it gets covered up and hushed and put aside. And people say, oh, trust us, we'll handle it, we'll handle this internally. And we don't put up with that anymore. We don't, we, we don't let the powerful just say, we'll handle ourselves, we'll deal with our problems. We get to look into this and we get to make sure that the investigations are thorough and that they're asking the right questions and talking to the right people. And we get to make sure that the investigations are fair and it's up to the public if you know, especially when it comes to an elected representative, it's up to the public to decide whether or not the punishment fit the crime. And to do that, you need to know what the crime actually was and what what this person actually did. Well, and that's a great example of the legislature uh, sometimes operating by different rules than everyone else, right? So in any other government agency, you'd point to this long list of Wisconsin cases that say investigations should be public. And, you know, eventually you can probably get them to turn it over. And in the legislature's case, they flat out said, we have a policy of not releasing these. And now that's being challenged. Uh, Another example that comes to mind is state lawmakers. And and this is this is legal. This is 
part of the law that they wrote in there, they get to selectively delete their records pretty much anytime they want, unless you've, you know, already filed the open records request and all, all of those protections kick in. So when you have a powerful entity like that, I'd imagine there is something about being able to take them to court and say, you have to operate by the same rules as everyone else. Yeah, they they get to write their rules. And like you said, they wrote the rules that they don't have to keep their records. So individual legislators frequently are just deleting massive amounts of emails because they don't want to have to turn them over and they can pick and choose which ones they want to delete. But uh, this also touches on, to branch off for a second to the open meetings law, there's there's an exemption there too, where generally speaking, bodies of, of government officials who make decisions have to meet publicly, but the legislators wrote an exemption for themselves so that their caucuses, the Republican caucus and the Democratic caucus, uh, do not have to hold their meetings open to the public. In a Tom Kamenek perfect world, if you could make any changes to Wisconsin's open records law, what are the the top two or three? Number one, get rid of those location fees. That's just a rife for abuse. It's a way that they can discourage requests while looking like they're cooperating. It's really obnoxious. Uh, set forth a specific amount for paper photocopies somewhere in the law. You get places trying to charge 25 cents a copy. It doesn't cost 25 cents to copy a piece of paper. If you do the calculations of what one piece of paper and the ink on a piece of paper costs, it's about a penny or two. And that's what it's supposed to be. And that would be nice to to have that set forth and established. Finally, it, it would be a timeline of some kind. This as soon as practicable and without delay means nothing. Uh, The way that courts uh, have to enforce open records laws means it's almost impossible to ever get a ruling from a court that uh, that uh, that something took too long. So there's there's basically no case law out there on that. So having a, a strict deadline or a deadline that, you know, reduces what the custodian can charge would be nice. So something that says perhaps if they take more than 10 days, 10 business days to fulfill a request, they can't charge you any location fees. And then all of a sudden that gives them an incentive to actually work on these things and get them done right away and make them a priority like they're supposed to be. Tom, before we go off the record, I want to ask you one last thing, because you created the Wisconsin Transparency Project after working for a number of years with the, for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Open government was one of your emphases. I know that you've testified or, or spoken many times before the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Why did you decide to step into your own realm and create something like the Wisconsin Transparency Project? I wanted to be able to focus exclusively on records and meetings law. I love transparency. That was my focus at Will, but even even there, I had a lot of other work to do. Will is interested in a lot of different types of cases, and I I just was not able to make it uh, my, my sole focus there. So when I left Will and created the Transparency Project, I was I was gambling because like I said, I work on a contingency. So I don't I don't get paid for most of my work until the end of a case. And thankfully I have a wonderful and supportive wife with a good job so we can actually do that and wait a while to get paid on my cases. So that that's great. But there's not enough resources out there for enforcing these laws. And when their laws aren't enforced, they're not followed. Custodians for the longest time have known that. If they delay, if they try to sneak in extra charges, if they 
are excessive on what they're redacting or withholding, they're almost certainly not going to get challenged about about that because district attorneys are too busy. They don't bring open records cases. The attorney general has not brought an open records or open meetings prosecution since Lautenschlager. It's been that long. And there's a handful of attorneys in Wisconsin, other attorneys that do some open records and meetings work, but it's not any of their focuses. So I decided Wisconsin needs somebody who's doing this full time that anybody can go to and find out what their rights are what their options are, and can hire at a reasonable cost to enforce these things. All right, it is time for us to go off the record. So this is the part of the podcast where we get a little more personal and have a bit of fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And to ask that question, we welcome back executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hello, hello. Hi, Tom. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thanks for hanging out and hanging around for the uh, off the record question. Um, So today, um, I'm kind of getting into the season of Halloween and the spirit of the spookiness. That's not really spooky at all. Um, So my question today is pretty simple. What is the worst and best Halloween candy? I, I knew you were going something candy related, and I thought you were just going to straight up ask about candy corn. Oh, but. which I adore. But that's for a whole different conversation. Oh, I love it. Anyway, my favorite, I'll start, and while you guys maybe ponder, um, my favorite are peanut butter cups, Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, I'll eat those year round, but like there's something about the pumpkins, and it's just so good. Anyway, um, and I, the worst is anything coconut, mounds or trash. Almond this Joy is a trash. recurring theme on Open I know, <laughs> I know. Blah, blah, blah. Sarah hates coconut. I know. If you've listened at all, you know that that's my hatred. Well, passion. feel free to send your candy to my house if you <laughs> oh, do not I'll, want I'll any, drop it uh, off. any any coconut flavored things. You like you like the like the mounds and the Almond Joy, Amanda? Is that I like Almond Joys. Okay. Almonds always got nuts. Mounds <laughs> don't. don't. Yeah, all right. Sometimes you feel like a... Um, the other thing, payday. Payday's kind of trash, too. Anyway. Payday's disappointing because you look, it's a candy bar and there's no chocolate. That's It's disappointing. Know, it's just covered in nuts. Anything <laughs> with peanuts feels like they're just trying to put filler in there to avoid putting it. Nah, you're starting to sound like my wife now, and I'm going to disagree with you on that because when we get to me, I'm telling you, Snickers is at the top of the list without uh-huh. a doubt. Snickers, it it doesn't just satisfy. Snickers is that's my that's what I crave. That's number one, and my kids know it because when I go trick or treating with them, my son always immediately turns around and hands me the Snickers, um, unless you know his mom is wanting them. But um, but no, I'm yeah. Snickers is my number one. I'll talk about more about the rest of mine later. You you go on. Okay, Tom. Snickers, Snickers. You eat a Snickers and you feel like you've got peanuts stuck in your throat for the next half hour. It's scratching you back there the whole time. Mm, you wash it down with that delicious chocolate and caramel. It's no, it's it's perfect. It's overrated. I will. That's you know what this is great about this. Every Snickers that your kids get this Halloween, you're bringing them yep. to Brian. We'll Polson. do a we'll do a candy swap. So oh, Sarah all can send that. all her like coconut all right. candies to my house. We'll send all like the Snickers and peanut stuff to your house. It sounds like Tom, we're not sending those to your house though. <laughs> no, I was gonna say I used to know where Brian lived, but I'm not sure I do anymore. <laughs> 
And by the way, paydays, no. I don't. Yeah. The paydays you can leave out. I, the Snickers, that's as many peanuts okay. as I want in a candy bar. Tom, what what are your favorites? I'm with Sarah. The, the Reese's Pieces or Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are both Chef's Kiss perfection for Halloween candy. Uh, Tootsie Rolls. I do not understand why Tootsie Rolls are a thing. <laughs> they do not taste like chocolate at all. They do not taste like anything I want in my mouth. And they're not fun to eat, no. I'm like they don't scarred. look like anything you want in your mouth either. I had I had braces for way too long and Tootsie Roll like that that was not something you wanted to eat with braces and so I yeah think... I believe I believe the American Dental Association agrees with this. Yeah. Yeah. Four out of five dentists. Yeah, not not a fan of Tootsie. I re- I mean you rarely get them from trick or treating, but I really like Take Fives. Like that's my yes. favorite. That's probably yes. oh, that is a pretty really rare excited. trick or treat candy bar. It, it is yes, but it's isn't is it not the best combination of everything sweet and salty yes. that you want? It does have peanuts. Sorry, Tom, but there are there's the peanut butter of yep. Reese's, there's the pretzel, there's the like the caramely nougat. Oh, it's it's it literally and is. Perfection. I'll usually find like one. Like there might yeah. be one, and so it's <laughs> like you dig through the bag to find that one. Take five. I'm I, I'm I'm not a Snickers. I usually toss the Snickers. I I really don't like candy corn, um, although I I don't probably hate it as much as some other people do. I this is going to be the first year where I'm dealing with kids Halloween candy, really, because my toddler is two, and so she wasn't really like doing the candy thing last year. But this year, it's like oh, she knows what candy is, and we'll be rationing out her candy. AKA taking our cut from the top, but I don't know, honey. Somehow it's all gone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She won't. She she won't. She won't know. She'll be excited when she gets a piece every day. Um, so that's gonna be a fun thing to uh to negotiate. You said children's candy. You should stop by our place for adults candy because we always have mulled wine and hot hot mulled <laughs> wine and say. other treats for trick or treaters, tr- trick or treating adults. Tom, that's the most beautiful thing I think about Wisconsin is, you know, I grew up in Missouri and and I don't know, maybe they do it now, but I don't think so. There was never like you didn't go house to house and have, you know, the adult treats waiting as well. But in Wisconsin, that's the best part of trick or treating is is which houses have the best adult treats to go along with uh, with, with the night. And then, you know, when my kids popping me a Snickers, it's the perfect night. Now, I don't want the candy corn, but it's not my least favorite. And I don't see many of these anymore, but I'm still scarred from being a child. I don't know if you guys remember the, I don't know if they're, they were caramels or what they were, but the little things in the orange and black wrappers that were, twi- uh, they're like oh. peanut butter taffy. Oh, it was the, it was the most disappointing thing in, like I would have a, I went around with a pillowcase is what we would do. We'd fill up our pillowcase yep, so and you get we. back. So you couldn't really see what was in it and you dump it out at the end. And that was like, to me, that was the inappropriate filler, but get rid of those. I don't want them. It was, that was a waste. And so that to me is my least favorite Halloween candy of all time. We should right. nominate some uh, some unexpected sleeper hits, and I, I want to raise Charleston chews. Oh. I am a real big fan of those. That vanilla flavor is mm, tasty. Have you ever put them in the freezer? Yes, that's oh, great. Oh, yeah, and then you crack them. Ugh, so good. <laughs> Again, I don't know that dentists are going to be, like, on board with that, but, yeah, they're so good. So take the coconut candies and from Sarah's house, redistribute those, get Brian the stuff with the peanuts, Go to Tom's house Snickers, for some mold wine. in particular. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I um I th- I think we've got a pretty good a pretty good system going. 
Well, Tom, thanks for sticking around and having a little bit of fun with us. And, and thank you for the time you spent with us on the, the podcast today. It's insightful stuff. And uh, and just we're grateful that there is someone who focuses on open records issues in the state of Wisconsin. So thanks again. This was a blast. Thanks for having me on. And it's good to get the word out. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will be back next week.